A very warm welcome if you've just joined us here on Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. My name is Adrian Fox, and I look forward to spending the next two hours with you for the third program in our special series on the legendary Maria Callas. In last week's program, we listened to highlights from Callas's great years, starting with her debut at Covent Garden in 1952, her earliest recordings for EMI in 1953, and up to 1955, the year that saw some of her greatest artistic achievements as the reigning queen of La Scala. We also discussed Callas's dramatic weight loss and transformation from obese prima donna into thin fashion icon. In tonight's program, we examine Callas's career and artistry during the tumultuous years 1956 through 1959. It was a period marked by tremendous artistic success, but also immense scandals, supposed walkouts and cancellations. As Callas's fame grew, so too did her notoriety and reputation as a difficult and demanding diva most of which was grossly unfounded and fabricated, and tonight we dispel some of the myths surrounding the Kalas legend. But the one myth we cannot dispel was the rapid deterioration of Kalas's voice. Having given so much so soon, by 1959 her career was virtually over and her voice in tatters. Some people say I have a beautiful voice, some people say I have not. It's a matter of opinion. Some people say I have a unique voice, and some people say it's just a whole big lie. People who don't like me can just not come and hear me. As for unique, I don't know whether it is unique. I think it's not. I think I'm just doing what once upon a time was done. Once upon a time, sopranos were considered sopranos, not light or heavy or medium or whatever you call it. A soprano was supposed to do every kind of opera. It's like a violinist, a pianist. It has to perform any kind of music. It's very difficult to uh, to speak about, about uh, the voice, the instrument voice of Miracalis. It was a very, very special instrument. You know, uh, something sometimes happened, something in the, um, with string instruments, violin, viola, cello, where the first moment that you listen to the, the sound of this instrument, the first feeling is a little bit strange sometimes, but after just a few minutes, that you get used, that you become friend of this kind of sound, then uh, the sound becomes a, a magic quality. This was Carlos.
Al Dolce Guidami from Donizetti's Anna Bolena, as sung by Maria Callas in that 1957 recording. Following her triumphant performances as Norma at La Scala in December of 1955, Callas kicked off 1956 with a taxing series of 17 performances of La Traviata and five performances of Il Barbieri di Sevilla at La Scala. On the opening night performance of Barbieri on the 16th of February, Callas, tired and overworked, sang the virtuoso aria Contra un cor during the lesson scene cautiously, ending the cadenza on a strident and wobbly A above the stave. Following some polite applause, Elma Viva's assessment Bella voce bravissima was too much to contend with for Callas's detractors, and a noisy protest broke out, which was eventually shouted down by Callas's fans.
certo bella voce, ma quest'aria cospetto è assai noiosa. Even during the early part of her career, the quality of Callas's top notes had always been somewhat unpredictable. A note produced effortlessly and solidly one night might come out shrill and ragged three nights later. As a result, Callas often referred to her voice as an animal she couldn't tame, and try though she did, it would often betray her. Here is composer Giancarlo Menotti and conductor Carlo Maria Giulini. I'm often reminded of, uh, when I think of Callas, of a question that was asked to uh, Caruso. When somebody asked Caruso what people liked so much in his voice, he said, it's the fear in my voice. Well, she always gave a, gave a sense that perhaps she, she would not be able to finish an, an aria. The audience was, it was sort of like watching a, a Callas fighting against Callas. It was sort of a, of a bullfight in which she finally killed the monster and she, and she was acclaimed as the, as the victorious uh, heroine of the, of, of the moment. This is something that I, I am sure that Maria Callas felt, this kind of duel. And the success of Maria, tremendous success, but always had, on my feeling, something bitter, because it was a kind of victory through a hard fight. Callas's voice was by nature flawed. It divided into three very distinct, rather than perfectly knit, registers for the top, middle and bottom of her range. This imperfection led some commentators to remark that she sang with three separate voices. Her top notes were brilliant, sometimes to the point of stridency, with a certain cutting edge or steel. Her middle register has been referred to as reedy, veiled and covered, but it was also her most expressive range. Contributing largely to Callas's distinct sound was an odd resonance in her mouth, similar to a buzz, which has been described as though she was singing with a mouthful of cotton wool. This bottled up or muzzled sound makes her voice instantly recognizable and she used this flaw to great advantage and as a means of vocal expression. EMI producer Walter Legg. You see, one of the curious things about Callas' voice, she sounds as if she's singing into a bottle. I started looking into her mouth and throat and to my astonishment, she has an upper palate of almost gothic shape. It goes up like a church steeple. But after all, the shape of the resonances, the shape of the mouth, the texture of the chords are those factors which make the character of a voice. The bottom range of Carlos's voice had an almost baritonal quality when she put pressure on lower notes for dramatic effect. She pushed her chest voice higher than most sopranos dared when she felt the text or the drama would gain by it, and although exciting to the listener, was not particularly healthy vocally. It was only in quick music, particularly descending scales, that Callas managed in joining these three incompatible voices into a unified whole. During the first half of her career, however, she disguised these audible gear changes with masterly skill. John Ardoin remarked that there were very basic physiological flaws in her voice from the beginning that could never be overcome. She disguised them, she made them look like they were part of the singing, and she did this by incredible willpower, by constant studying and hard work. Carlos's most persistent and controversial vocal problem was, as some called it, a wobble, a distinct fluctuation of the tone which appeared on sustained notes above the stave. After 1955, the wobble became increasingly pronounced. It was not a form of vibrato, 
a technique used by all singers and some instrumentalists as a means of expression and emphasis, which implies a slight variation of tone. By 1960, as Robert Levine noted, it was frequently awful, a note flapping in the wind, strident and outside of the correct pitch, which could wind up anywhere. By 1955, the inherent physiological flaws in Callas's voice had started to catch up with her, irrespective of how well she tried to disguise the deficiencies in her voice. These vocal deficiencies, the actual physiological shortcomings in her vocal apparatus, were amplified by Callas's dramatic weight loss. As Joan Sutherland pointed out, Callas's body seemed to be too frail to support that grand fat sound that she had possessed prior to her weight loss between 1953 and 1954. But with Callas, it was not the voice, so much as what she managed to do with that voice, that left an indelible impression. Callas was, and still is, unequaled in fusing music and drama by giving the words shape and meaning through vocal colorations and using a myriad of inflections and tints in the timbre of her voice to bring to life the characters she was portraying. One such example is her studio recording of Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking scene, in which Lady Macbeth, deranged and filled with guilt, attempts to wipe the blood from her hands, recalling the murders and her disgust at her cowardly husband. This recording, John Ardwan believes, is one of the most descriptive moments of singing ever captured on record. It's so much happiness when you manage out of, uh, out, out of intangibles uh, to, to uh, dominate an instrument that is really very difficult, which is the vocal instrument, because it deals with human feelings, with the, uh, with the weather, with the, how you feel, with circumstances, with millions of uh, odds to, against you. And you manage to dominate the, this instrument and convey so many colors. It is a sort of a drug to you. This channel, this particular Yes, and yes, if yes. you've managed to transmit this to the public, well, then this is really the greatest uh, ivresse that you call, yes, drunkenness. Yes, it's yes. a drunkard feeling. Yes. And it's contagious all around. Oh. 
Una Machia Equitutora from Verdi's Macbeth, and that was conducted by Nicola Rechino in that 1958 recording. Following some much-needed rest, Callas made her long-awaited Metropolitan Opera debut on October the 29th, 1956, in the title role of Bellini's Norma. From the moment of her arrival in New York, Callas was caught up in a maelstrom of publicity, which came to a head with the publication of an unflattering cover story in Time magazine the day of her mate debut. The article rehashed all of the Callas clichés, including her temper, her supposed rivalry with Renata Tebaldi, and especially her difficult relationship with her mother. You know, you talk about uh, misquotation, uh, Madame Callas. One of the most famous of uh, the quotations, and I, I suppose it's a misquotation, or maybe not. No, I have the courage to tell you if it's not. All right, all right. And that has to do with your mother. You said, mother can go to work, she is young enough, because... No, I never said that. You did not say that? No. Certain people, uh, dishonest people, took advantage of her uh, battle against me to uh, be put in the newspapers or to have her print stories and they would gain money. She claimed, of course, that there was no money, that she needed money and that you refused refused. Because at a certain moment, uh, she used blackmail unfortunately. And I don't like blackmail by anybody. How do you mean blackmail? Well, I mean, she says, you either give me this and that and that, otherwise I'll plaster you against all the newspapers. And uh, that she did. There's no use in seeing each other and being false when they're... I don't think that blood really ties you that much. I think I have good friends that have helped me Mm. more than my mother. But the fact is that, that your father, your mother, and your sister somehow have left your life along the way. Shall we say uh, we frankly did not uh, agree too much. They had a way of living that was not my way. I have never spoken against my mother, though I could have. So it's not for the public that I don't want to speak against my mother. It's for my own sake. I want to be in peace with myself. My mother has a right to say anything she wants, pro or against me. Following Callas's mate debut, the New York Times critic Howard Taubman called Callas's voice puzzling. Occasionally, he wrote, her voice gives the impression of having been formed more out of sheer willpower than natural endowments. In addition to Norma and Tosca, Callas's first season at the mate also included performances of Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor. The second Lucia performance on the 8th of December 1956 was Callas's only mate broadcast. A special air of anticipation can be felt throughout the Opera House, for we are about to hear the Metropolitan Radio debut of Maria Meneghini Callas. Miss Callas will be heard in the title role of Gaetano Donizetti's Lucia de Lamamour, a work which is automatically associated with coloratura, virtuosity and splendor. Mr. Bing. Thank you, Mr. Cross, and good afternoon. In view of the fact that opera is an international art, I... I think it is extremely interesting to note that today's cars is international too. I'm sure you would like to meet them. First, Maria Meningini Callas. How do you do to you all? How do you do, Mr. Bing? Thank you. I am uh, not good at words, I suppose. The only thing I can say is to this vast, enormous public is that uh, I hope we all, I do, please you. I'm so happy to be with you today, uh, especially in my own country. Uh, when I think that I stole so much of my homework just to listen to these Saturday broadcasts when I was a child, it's just, uh, well, it gives me, I suppose, a bit the jitters to have to do it today. 
although I should be used to it. Anyway, I do wish to give you a hearty thanks and hello to the part, the Greek part of my blood, that is to all the Greeks here, to the Americans, I'm born here, so I consider myself an American, and to the Italians, being an Italian wife. So thank you all, God bless you, and thanks again. Thank you, Maria Callas. And now to the villain of this afternoon's performance, Enzo Sordello, who sings the part of Enrico. Good afternoon, and thank you, Mr. Bing. È la prima volta che mi trovo negli Stati Uniti. Ne ho ricevuto una grandissima Rudolf Bing's assessment of tenor Enzo Sordello as the villain of the evening would prove even more pathetic than Bing could have foreseen. At the end of Act 2, Scene 1, both Kalas and Sordello sang two interpolated high notes. Kalas, however, misjudged her breath and barely attacked the high D before attenuating it, whereas Sordello, sensing an opportunity to show Kalas up, sustained his G through the last measures. <laughs> Enraged by Sordello's behavior, Callas demanded that he be fired, providing Bing with the ultimatum, it's him or it's me. Bing had no option but to relieve Sordello of his duties, and in the days that followed, newspapers were again filled with stories of the tempestuous tigress, claiming that Sordello had been hard done by and showing photos of him tearing up a photograph of Callas. 1957 is considered by many to represent Callas's last really great year. And what a year it was. A concert in Chicago that included Inquesta Regia from Turandot, Casta Diva from Norma, The Mad Scene from Lucia, as well as Meyerbeer's Dinora and Bellini's Amina. Performances of Norma in London, a revival of Sonambula at La Scala, followed by her first appearances as Anna Bolena and then as Gluck's Iphigenia. Lucia di Lammermoor in Rome, a La Scala tour to Cologne and Edinburgh, interrupted by her grand return to Athens, a concert in Dallas, and opening the La Scala season as Amelia in Verdi's Un Ballo and Maschera. Appearances to which must be added no less than five complete recordings made between February and September of that year for EMI. Il Barbieri di Sevilla, La Sunambula, Turandot, Manon Lescaut, and Medea. Later, Callas recognized that this great year of 1957 was when she broke up and wore herself out. Following the 1956-57 season at the Met, Callas, on her way back to Italy from America, stopped off in London for two performances of Norma. At Covent Garden, Callas achieved the success that she could not find in her first season at the Met. Following her triumph, Bing wired Callas's congratulations, to which she replied, I am still trying to discover what happened in New York. I am only sorry I couldn't give you personally what other theatres have. I hope next year. Callas's performances in Norma garnered rave reviews, though Noel Goodwin in the Daily Express wrote of the obvious effort that it cost her to produce a high D at the end of the Act One trio, and he predicted that her career would be over in five years if she went on singing in that way, as indeed it virtually would be. Callas continued to stun audiences with the virtuosity of her performances. In April 1957, she undertook Donizetti's Anna Bolena at La Scala, only the second time that the opera had been performed in the 20th century. As Anne Boleyn, 
Kalas achieved phenomenal success. Her singing, coupled with her skills as an actress, won her the longest solo curtain call that La Scala had ever seen, 24 minutes. Reporting in Opera magazine, Desmond Shaw Taylor wrote with great admiration of Kalas's performance, noting how the final scene showed her at the summit of her powers both as a singer and as a tragic actress. Much has been written, noted John Steen, about Kalas's power of acting with the voice, and almost as much about the various flaws in her singing. This performance finds the elements in most nearly perfect equilibrium, the superb tragic actress matched with a frequently exquisite singer.
The finale there from Donizetti's Anna Bolena, recorded live on the 14th of April 1957 at La Scala in Milan, and Gian Andrea Gavetzeni there leading the forces of La Scala. During July 1957, Callas, along with the touring La Scala company, appeared in two performances of Bellini's La Sonnambula at the Grosses Opera House in Cologne. A recording of the first performance from July the 4th survives and reveals Callas's voice still capable of breathtaking virtuosity. As John Ardoy notes, the vaulting cadenza between the two verses of Anon Junge, which is couched in a single phrase and flung out to the German audience with what amounts to ecstatic arrogance, is astounding.
The Cabaleta Anon Junge from Bellini's La Sonnambula, recorded live on the 4th of July 1957 at the Grosses House Cologne, and the conductor there was Antonino Votto. Many reasons have been put forward to explain the premature and rapid decline of Callas's voice, and many critics have claimed that Callas's vocal undoing was brought about because of the ill-considered range of roles that she undertook and the way in which she continued to alternate between lighter bel canto roles such as Elvira in Ipuritani, Amina in La Sonambula or Lucia di Lammermoor, and heavy repertoire such as Brunhilde in Die Valkyrie, Turandot or Abigail in Nabucco. As William Ashbrook notes, Kundri, Gioconda and Elvira are parts with contradictory requirements even for a healthy natural voice, and in a very real sense, Galas's voice was to some extent manufactured. In a few years, the loss of steadiness at the top could no longer be disguised. Given this tendency that Kalas had to juxtapose roles with vastly different vocal requirements, it is therefore not surprising, though nonetheless miraculous, that we find Kalas a mere couple of days after her performances in La Sonambula in Germany, undertaking the role of Turandot for a complete recording of the opera for EMI under the baton of her erstwhile mentor, Tullio Serafin. Tullio Serafin understood her potential, understood her musicality, her talent and her voice. He used to call her uh, una grande vociaccia. Vociaccia, it's a, a little bit pejorative. I mean, it means a, a, an ugly voice, but grande means a big voice, a great voice. A great ugly voice, in a way, <laughs> yes.
una grande vocaccia, indeed, as the base Nicola Rossi-Lemeni there recalled. And the aria that followed there was, of course, in Questa Regia from Puccini's Turandot, conducted there by Tullio Serafin. In August 1957, Callas agreed to a series of performances of La Sunambula with the touring La Scala company at the Edinburgh Festival, against her doctor's wishes, who had certified her as exhausted and on the verge of physical collapse, suffering from low blood pressure and continued weight loss. The Edinburgh engagement, however, was a prestigious one for La Scala, and they sorely needed Callas's name. Her contract was for four performances, but due to the great success of the performances, La Scala announced a fifth performance. Callas refused to sing and informed Antonio Giringelli, the director of La Scala, that she was physically exhausted and had already committed to a previous engagement, a party thrown in her honour in Venice. Despite the fact that Callas had fulfilled her contract, she was accused by the press of walking out on La Scala and the festival, and the event was labelled another Callas walkout. Neither Giringelli nor the Edinburgh Festival defended Callas's actions or informed the press that the additional performance was not approved by her nor part of her contract. As it so happened, Renata Scotto took over the part and her performance proved to be the launch pad for her international career. I met her just the day after I, I replaced her in Edinburgh, in La Sonnambula. She left for something I don't remember. It was a scandal. And uh, in Edinburgh, everybody was crazy because Callas left. And uh, the, I remember the, the, there was many, many newspapers that talk about And I had uh, uh, many journalists, they, they want to speak me, they, they, they talk with me, they want to talk me, with me and, uh, and ask if Callas hit me or say me something very bad. I said, no, I didn't even matter. I said, why she had to say something bad to me? I didn't. In fact, a lot of unfair things have been said about Maria. Her cancellation record was not as the world believed it to be at all. She canceled relatively rarely. She was too much of a professional to be canceling. Uh, Madam Carlos, uh, much has been said and written about your temperament. What do you have to say? Are, are you really temperamental? What do you mean by temperamental, Mr. Morrow? I quite haven't understood. Well, uh, I, I suppose uh, tantrums, throwing things, uh, screaming. Oh I've never thrown anything at anyone, <laughs> though sometimes you feel like it. No, tantrums. It's not even true. It's just certain situations that... Uh, turn up, you know nothing about it, and you just react as any normal human being, only that I suppose that these situations are uh, taken advantage of, you know, yeah. all these little things that become great things because they make news. Shall we say we're a victim of certain situations? Oh, it's very easy that newspapers say, oh, that terrible callous, I gained so much money in one evening. Oh, she is a capricious so, 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 but it's not so. Madam Callas, why is it that the world of opera is so passionate, so fraught with jealousy and drama? Uh, isn't uh, every field that way? No. Oh, I'm sure, yes. Look, your whole life has been constructed. Given that superb voice, the rest of it, professionally, has been constructed on drama. Ah, uh, well, maybe the other people make drama. Well... What's the drama? Well, you know as well as I. What? It's... it's, it's uh, 
walkouts and sicknesses and affairs and anger and jealousy and watch the drama. Have you ever walked out on your work? I'm sure you have. Furious one day. Well, I've, yes, but... Only you're not in the newspaper. That's correct. Now... Anger, uh, if you don't get angry sometimes, even not really, essentially, you never obtain the results. During performances, if I really didn't get angry and they were not afraid, the other people would not work more than the necessary. You mean they're afraid of you? Afraid? Yeah, yes. Afraid, afraid of, of what? Uh, I would have to sort of whip them with my anger. If you don't whip them into working twice as hard, either morally or by your, uh, shall we say, tantrum, which is also sometimes false, they would never be able to come at that uh, date, shall we say, three, four days, as I've prepared operas in three or four days. If I didn't really start uh, screaming and yelling, you wouldn't have the result. We would not have gone on stage. 1958 began with a major scandal in Kalas's career, an event that continued to dog her throughout her life, even after the matter was legally resolved in her favour. Kalas was to open the Rome Opera House season on the 2nd of January 1958 in Norma, with Italy's president in attendance. During rehearsals, however, Kalas caught a cold in the unheated theatre, and she wanted to cancel the performance. But the theatre management had not thought to arrange an understudy, and prevailed on her to sing against her better judgment. I told him I'm, I'm not well. Now something might come wrong. Who is my double? Nobody can double Callas. Oh, I said to San Paoli, I said, look, Guido, let's look facts in the face. After tomorrow is a performance, and it's an opening night, and you have the president. If I get sick, who will? He says, nobody can double Callas. All right. So you take the responsibility of saying, Callas was sick, and we will not substitute her. I was sick, I could not continue, because if I was well, I would have continued, and I was spitting their faces at my enemies, because I, I don't like it. But if I am attacked... I must defend myself, and if I can make my enemies on, I would not kill them, but I, if I could make them go on their knees in front of me, I can, I will, and I must. Following her performance of Casta Diva in the first act, Kalas realized that her voice was slipping away and that she would be unable to finish the evening's performance. After the interval had gone on for what seemed an interminable length, even for a first night, an announcement came from the stage that the remainder of the evening's performance was cancelled. As you can hear in that clip, the outcry from the audience was tremendous. Pandemonium broke out as outraged theatre-goers left the theatre, whistling and shouting into the street. But it was not the audience reaction, so much as the media coverage following the event, that turned the incident into a cause célèbre. The next morning, a report in Il Giorno stated, Maria Callas has for several years followed a path of melodramatic debauchery. This episode shows that she is a disagreeable performer who lacks the most elementary sense of discipline and propriety. In Milan, at the Bifi Scala, an argument between pro- and anti-Kala supporters threatened to degenerate into a brawl, and in the Italian parliament, Kalas was denounced by several politicians. Here is Kalas in an interview with High Gardner, recorded one month later on the 26th of February, 1958, in New York. But I wonder if you'd like to, to, to clear up some of the details of what happened uh, in Rome. 
What happened in Rome? Yeah. Oh, dear. Did something else happen? <laughs> no, I'm referring to the same thing. Oh, to, uh... The second act of Norma. Oh, the second act that did not take place on account of a stupid, stupid cold. <laughs> well, there's nothing more to it. Of course, it's gone and passed, and everyone has understood that it really was a cold, and, uh, as I said before on Mr. Miller's program, it was just a certain situation that was taken advantage, and, you know, just, uh... It got, it got past uh, it, the truth. It got past the limit. That's all there. Uh, why did you go on in the first place if you, if you weren't feeling well? Well, you see, uh, when I, uh, you know, uh, Carlos, when she re she has reached this sort of pitiful state that whatever she does, she's always criticized. And if I don't sing, then she's, oh, here she goes again, you know, all that uh, talk. So I didn't think it was that bad vocally and also because I entered in a very cool dressing room and that probably uh, just, you know, finished me. I was already in bed for two days with these hot, um, you know... Uh, mustard plasters. Mustard plasters, uh -huh. and that, I suppose, just, you know, un undressing a theater that had been closed for six months and was very cold. All these things, you know, that any human being reacts to, only, I suppose, I, and I do wish I couldn't be a human being, sometimes I would avoid certain situations. Well, a lot of stories have painted you as being exactly that, not a human being. And well, I, and I, uh, uh, gosh, after... I wish I, I wasn't sometimes. After I first met you, I, I realized that you were, and I felt very sorry that at one time I described you as the dizzy dean of opera singers, because I don't think you're dizzy at all. I think you've got your feet right on the ground. Thank you, Mr. Gardner. That's wonderful of you to say so. Uh, that's all I want. Uh, do, you, do you think that, that if you had come out for the second act and explained to the audience why you couldn't go on, that you might have gotten sympathetic applause instead of catcalls and boos? Oh, dear. Well, uh, let us precise one thing. I did not get catcalls and boos because, you see, the audience did not know that I was uh, postponing the performance. The, the theater had said that it just was for technical purposes, so they couldn't uh, boo me. I there see. was one thing that I was booed uh, during my aria because, you <coughs> see, unfortunately, I have uh, certain colleagues that uh, pay to have me booed. You mean That's people been, actually yes. pay to have you booed? Yes. Um, That's fascinating. It's been going on for six years at the Scala each evening, or practically each evening, I have uh, to deal with these people. So, you see, I really don't run away from my work. In fact, I'm used to uh, fighting, though I don't like fighting. I had to quit there because in the first place I just couldn't go on and uh, I couldn't make a pitiful uh, performance. I had to make a colorless performance, especially with the, these uh, so-called boos in the theater. Of course, I fight if I have my weapon. My only weapon is my voice. Now, if I haven't got my weapon, I, it's, it's ridiculous that I fight. It's just plain suicide. Yeah, and you can't, you cannot change a paid booer into a, into a cheerer. No, dear, because he'll boo anyway. Well, I will if I feel fine. I mean, he won't cheer, but he will at least keep quiet because, you know, it's happened all the time. I've got but, two, interesting, uh, two interesting points here. Did you ever get paid for, the, for doing the one act of Norma that night? Oh, no. They didn't even send the doctor the next day to see how I was, and they knew I was sick. Well... You mean with all of the raps you took, it was a benefit? Well, it, uh, I do benefit, a lot of benefits, but not that kind. I don't think anyone would like that kind of benefit. Uh, I'd like to ask another they question. They never wrote me one line about anything, even telling me whether I was supposed to sing or not the next performances. That's Is that right? For the matter of being human <clears throat> beings. And uh, that, of course, the whole situation was the unfortunate way that was handled by the theater. But, uh, you see, they just... Uh, it's, uh, may I compare it? It's a very vulgar comparing... Uh, comparison. But anyway, uh, your cook, if he spoils the dinner, he doesn't go and tell the guests that uh, there's no dinner tonight or he spoiled the dinner. It's, it is the host, that is. It's Mr. Gardner that goes and tells the guests. Same thing in, uh, in Rome. Well, actually, I couldn't I... go tell the public. I was even advised to faint, you know, and I would have had the sympathy of the public and of everything. Well, why didn't you faint? That would have been enough. Oh, a... dear. Well, why should I? 
Well, it would have stopped a lot of... Uh, uh, yes, I suppose it would have. But you see, I talk. have one unfortunate thing. I'm always very loyal in whatever I do and very honest. Callas eventually brought a lawsuit against the Rome Opera House, but by the time the case was settled 13 years later and the Rome Opera was found to be at fault for having refused to provide an understudy, Callas's career was already over. If anything, the Rome debacle only served to fuel Callas's growing anxiety, fears and insecurities, which started to have an instant audible effect on her voice. Much of her vocal difficulty, noted Rupert Christensen, stemmed from her psychology, what Walter Legg referred to as her superhuman inferiority complex and her obsessive quest for self-improvement, which must have started in her sad childhood efforts to win her mother's love. Here is another excerpt from Callas' interview with High Gardner, followed by an extract from an interview with Edward Downs. Hello. Hello. Madam Callas, how are you this evening? Oh, I'm fine, thank you, Mr. Gardner. Very happy to talk to you. I am very happy to talk to you, and I hear you stopped the show last night at the Met Opera again. Oh, how nice of you to say so. Thank you. Do you sleep better after you stop a show? Well, of course we do, though. You must remember one thing, Mr. Gardner, that uh, we always have our little checking machines, and, you know, sometimes we, even if we do show stop the show... We have uh, certain things that did not please us, other things that made us very happy, but we forget the happy things and we remember the things that did not please us just to get, the, you know, to improve them. Well, have you ever done what you call a perfect show? No. No, and I don't think it ever does come out because, you see, we're perfectionists and uh, perfection is not human. When you say we, you mean I, don't you? Artists. No, I mean artists. It's not me. Not all artists feel that way. Well, that's to their conscience, dear, <laughs> so long as I feel that way. I talk with myself yeah. frequently, Mr. Downs. And, uh, oh, yes, mainly during the evening or every now and then I just withdraw to myself and I calculate things and I say, well, this happened and that happened. Why should this happen? Why did I do that? And why should I do that? And why don't I do it better? And why don't you have enough uh, willpower? And, you know, you reason with yourself. Doesn't it happen to you? Not that systematically, I think. You well, sound as if you really... Uh... When you finish a performance or when you study, at the end of the day, you say, well, my day was made of this and that and that. Now, this and that happened. Let's see what we can do tomorrow. The good things we forget about. I said, well, that was supposed to happen. We mm -hmm. should have done good. Yes. Now, what about the bad things? Well, let's see how can we improve those bad things. You sound this very self-critical. Terribly. Terribly, and it could, uh, I could overdo it, but I prefer that with all my crises rather than just sit down oh, and course. enjoy glory because of that course. sitting down and enjoying glory means the end of a great, great art because you're happy with what you do and then and, there's no progress. And, and, and you don't have changes. And there's no. Well, since you are so self critical and so aware and so, so uh, determined to grow, could I ask you, uh, can you remember what has been for you? I'm not determined to grow. I am, uh, forgive my correcting you there. Please. It I'm... is my will to do what I do better. It's a matter uh -huh. of feeling well I mean with myself. Growing. That's what I mean. See by what growing. I mean? Yes. I mean, uh, well, I'm happy with myself. I did my best. Yes. And tomorrow I'll do even more. Yes. So you see, it's a matter of amour proper. How can we say it? Of uh, uh, pride. Feeling a pride of yes. duty, yes. Yes. I do it for myself. Yes. You, you say you have struggled, you have struggled psychologically, you have struggled artistically, you discipline yourself. What has been a problem that has taken more of your strength than... than pessimism. Uh, I'm a terrible pessimist. 
Is that so? I think I'm incapable of doing a good job, and I try so hard to do a better job that sometimes you you ruin things, you know. One can try you too lose hard, control, I suppose. Yes, and you lose control of uh, of uh, well, uh, you think you're doing nothing good. So that, in other words, that pulls down your uh, relaxation and your. That's true, I, but isn't that part it. of the of, yes. of the dynamo of what uh, makes you? Yes, keep but striving. any exaggeration is not good. I no. realize that, but it's not always easy. Of course, you it's see, not. I've had so much glory, and I have that uh, my pride would want me to do even more. Kalas herself once said that only a happy bird can sing, and on another occasion, it is not my voice which is sick; it is my nerves. Here is Kalas's colleague, baritone Tito Gobi. I don't think anything happened to her voice. I think, I think she only lost confidence. She was at the top of a, of a career that the human being can desire, and she felt the enormous responsibility. You know, for for Mr. Soprano, for Miss Nobody, doesn't matter if you. Do a performance not so good for Carlos? It was impossible. She must. She was obliged to give her best every night, and maybe she felt she was not anymore. She lost confidence, and I think that was the the beginning of the end of this career. Through the rest of 1958, Carlos steadily started to reassert herself. She travelled to the U.S. for her second, this time highly successful season at the Met. Which included performances in La Traviata, Lucia di Lammermoor, and Tosca. Back in Europe, Callas performed in a revival of the previous year's production of Anna Bolena at La Scala, her first performance in Italy following the notorious Rome walkout. For months, Callas had been attacked in the Italian press, and by the time of the Bolena performances, she had been tried in absentia and unanimously pronounced guilty. The conductor of those performances, Gian Andrea Cavazzini, later remembered how. All the public could think about was her cancellation in Rome. I went to her dressing room before the performance. She was there alone and in the costume of Anna Bolena. She looked ready to go to the block, for she knew the public was there to get her. I took her hand, and it was ice cold. A former colleague of Callas at La Scala, Graziella Schiutti, remembers Callas' fear backstage. And she was there waiting to go on stage for the last big aria.、Hmm? And I saw it was not the premiere; it was one of, of, of the performances. And I saw, and she was in a, in a, in a state of, of nervous that I went and said, "Maria, for God's sake! I mean, you, it's now. I mean, you're the glory, and then you have performed." And so, and he grabbed my arm, you know, like this squeeze, and he said, "You know that every time I go out there, they are they are waiting to to get me." In the third scene of Act One of Anna Bolena, Henry VIII discovers his wife with Percy and orders her arrested for adultery. During the performance, as two guards came to seize her, Callas violently pushed them aside and hurled herself to the front of the stage, spitting her lines directly at the audience: "Judici ad Anna, judici," meaning judges for Anna, judges. Piero Tosi remembers: "It wasn't theatre anymore; it was reality." Callas was defending herself. All but saying, "If this is my trial, judge me." But remember, I am your queen. She dared her accusers and stared them down, dramatically surpassing anything she had ever done, singing with scorching brilliance. 
When the curtain fell, the audience went mad, an uproar, sheer lunacy. Then Kala swept forth for her bows, inflated with her power, her victory, her magnificence, and every time she came forth, she grew more and more. You could not dream what she did. It was a show within a show. Director Franco Zeffirelli. She brought out what the character was supposed to be. It, it, it happened something magic. I mean, it's, it's easy to say Callas was magic, but there, there was something superhuman that happened. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it. Find the right words for it. But she was possessed. Thank you. 
Nevertheless, in spite of Callas's overwhelming success in Anna Bolena, a contingent of Callas's detractors was at work, determined to make her life as unpleasant as possible. After each of the remaining performances of Anna Bolena, Callas was taunted with a shower of radishes and carrots, and even an old shoe was thrown at her. EMI producer Walter Lake. It was the habit of her fans to occupy the seats in the gallery nearest to the stage, and when she took her curtain calls at the end of the opera, to shower her with small bouquets. The fans of a rival soprano decided they would uh, disturb this. So they had bunches of radishes and bunches of carrots and other small vegetables. They got there earlier than the Callas fans, occupied the seats nearest to the proscenium arch. And instead of Callas getting her usual shower of bouquets, she got a shower of vegetables and, of course, some bouquets from her own fans. She is very short-sighted. And she walked down, picked up each of these offerings from the floor, sniffed them. The vegetables were dropped into the orchestra. The flowers were handed to her colleagues. It was one of the supreme examples of absolute sovereignty of the stage and quickness of thinking of it. On May 19th, Callas undertook what was to be her last new role at La Scala for more than two years, Imogen in Bellini's Il Pirata. In the final scene of the opera, Imogen, realizing that her lover Gualtiero is to be executed, imagines she sees him mounting the scaffold, at which point Callas, as was customary, commenced the cabaletta facing the audience. During the fifth and final performance on the 31st of May, however, Callas, in an act of defiance against Ghiringelli, whose animosity towards Callas was still strongly felt after the previous year's supposed cancellation in Edinburgh, turned to face his box and hurled the line, La vedete il palco funesto, there behold the fatal scaffold, directly at him. In Italian, palco means both scaffold and box, and Callas's intended meaning was not lost on anyone.
Girengeli at once withdrew, but effected a speedy revenge. After the performance had ended, and as the audience was showering Kalas with flowers and cheers, he ordered the safety curtain dropped and the house lights dimmed, cutting the accolades abruptly short. Kalas, fuming, announced that it was the end of her relationship with La Scala. When asked about the loss of Kalas, Girengeli simply said, Prima donnas, come and go. La Scala remains. At the beginning of June, Callas proceeded to London for five performances of Verdi's La Traviata. As Violetta, Callas continued to scale down her vocal handling of the role, whether out of vocal necessity, artistic conviction, or a mixture of both. I had, uh, without the critics knowing it, I had a compliment paid to me by saying that the colour of my voice in other words, they wouldn't know how, but the, the critics said that Kalas in Traviata appeared to us tired. In the last act? Generally. Generally, yes. Yes, and especially in the last act. This was a, a compliment for me because I struggled so hard to find this particular quiet, uh, rather little tired quality that I wanted and took a long time to have it. And it's dangerous, uh, dangerous yes. work also because you so it's like on a, a little thread that can break from woman to the other, the sound you want. Critic Peter Hayworth wrote in The Observer an illuminating testimony of Callas's unique dramatic grasp of the role of Violetta, and I quote, Callas's understanding of this great part finds its way into the smallest gesture and movement, into the nervous passage of a hand around the face, the terrible fragility of body that in the last act turns every moment into a labour, and the fearful abruptness with which the gaping image of death is all at once there in her staring eyes. And then Kalas does after all sing, and her singing was full of detail that again and again illuminated the part as though for the first time. But perhaps the most marvellous moment of the evening was the long, sustained B-flat before Violetta descends into the opening phrase of Dite alle Giovine. This is the moment of decision on which the whole opera turns. By some miracle, Callas makes that note hung unsuspended in mid-air. Unadorned and unsupported, she fills it with all the conflicting emotions that besiege her. As she descends to the aria, which she opened with a sweet, distant mezza voce of extraordinary fragility, the die is cast. One of the things that was tremendously noticed, one of the very many details, uh, when you last did it in London, uh, in 1958, I think, Yes. was in the great scene with Germont, with the father of Alfredo, uh, when you make this great act of renunciation of, of, of your newly found lover, and the, the section beginning, Detaila Giovine, si bella e pura, and you had a comma, just a perceptible comma, before the word pura. That I, I learned from Seraphine. Marvellous moment, I remember. It's a hesitation mm. that even from a woman like her, to say pura, mm. pure, mm. is something that actually, as she is already in the purifying uh, s- state, yes. saying pura is even not daring to pronounce the word.
Nicola Rechigno, who conducted these 1958 Covent Garden performances of Traviata, recalls. I remember once, we were, I think at Covent Garden, we were doing Traviata, and uh, at the end of uh, Aforselui, uh, she would uh, attack this note very soft, and she'd crack it every night. And I'd go backstage, and I'd say, Oh, Maria, uh, come on, uh, attack it a little bit louder, more forte, and then when you have the note, then you can diminish it and get your effect. And this kept going night after night after night, and I said, finally I said, well, you know, you're a Greek, and no use talking to you. Uh, she said, Nicola, I won't compromise. I'll crack every night, but I'm dying, and that's the way it's going to be.
promessa e di sfida ebbe luogo. Il barone fu ferito per ogni ora. Alfredo in strano suolo, il vostro sacrificio io stesso gli ho velato. Egli a voi tornerà per il suo perdono.
Addio del Passato from Verdi's La Traviata, sung there by Maria Callas in that live 1958 recording from Covent Garden, and the orchestra of Covent Garden was conducted by Nicola Rachigno. On the 7th of October 1958, Callas returned to New York to meet with Rudolf Bing so as to discuss her contract and appearances during her third Met season. In addition to Puccini's Tosca, Callas and Bing had discussed the possibility of her alternating performances as Violetta in La Traviata with performances as Lady Macbeth, two very different operas which require almost totally different singers with different types of voices. On the 31st of October 1958, Callas opened the newly established Dallas Opera Company with what was to be her final performances in La Traviata. Meanwhile, Bing had wired Callas congratulating her on her success in Traviata, adding... But why in Dallas? It was during their time in Dallas that Callas's husband and manager, Giovanni Battista Meneghini, saw an opportunity for Callas to undertake a major and very lucrative tour of the U.S. to be recorded for broadcast on television. The problem was that the tour overlapped with Callas's third Met season, and so Meneghini started plotting a way to get Callas out of the Metropolitan Opera contract. Meneghini kept on stalling matters with the Met, which he believed will exasperate Bing to the point where he would lose his temper and cancel the contract himself. Well, Bing eventually did just that by sending Callas a telegram terminating her contract with the Metropolitan Opera mere hours before the curtain was to go up on the first performance of Medea with the Dallas Opera Company on the 6th of November 1958. If anything, Bing's precipitate act was the fire that helped to kindle Callas's only American performances of Medea. As John Ardoy notes, to those who witnessed any one of them or heard this recording of the premiere, there is little doubt that Callas's vitriolic sounds are directed as much to Bing as to Jason. Maria Callas isn't fired. Maria Callas is severed. That night, she came to the theater looking like an empress. She wore a ermine thing that draped to the floor and she had every piece of jewelry she ever owned she said uh, you all know what's happened tonight for me is a very difficult night and I will need the help of every one of you well she proceeded to give a performance that uh, was historical
And that extract there from the finale of Cherubini's Medea, starting with the section Numi Venetia Me, in which Medea calls on her dark gods to aid her in killing her children. And singing there with Kalas was Teresa Berganza. Following the performance, a press conference was held where Kalas had the following to say. Why in Dallas and not here? That's something I'd like to tell him. Why doesn't he do these performances at the Met? And I would be there with pleasure. But in any case, very best wishes for triumphal success. And by the way, I suppose I must tell you something. We started quarreling uh, involuntarily on my side, of course, because... No, I didn't think, of course, it was a quarrel. I just refused uh, the next year's contract because he offered me the old repertoire, that is, the old Norma staging, which you all saw. Which he's done time and time again. The Norma, Barbara Seville, Traviata, Lucia, and I said, no, I'm sorry, I cannot do routine. I want new performances, staged well. Mm, You know, like here, like a little young Dallas is doing, my God. I suppose that made him angry. I don't know. I mean, I can't explain it otherwise. I do not propose to enter into a public feud with Madame Callas, being retorted, since I am well aware that she has considerably greater competence and experience at that kind of thing than I have. Twenty years later, however, in 1978, and following Callas's death, Bing had the following to say. Oh, my God, is that really 20 years ago? Well, it was just a question. It was a decision, really. Does she run the Met, or do I run the Met? And at that time, perhaps very wrongly, I felt that I was running the Met. And uh, she made, I mean, obviously, Carlos was treated, kid glove is, is, is uh, an understatement. Every wish she had, and they were usually reasonable, was fulfilled, and, but occasionally she became just intolerable. And there was an agreement, I don't uh, remember the exact details now, but there was an agreement that she would do uh, Lady Macbeth and Traviata. And obviously these are extremely different parts in their textures. And I arranged with her how many days she would need in between, and that was all arranged and all discussed. And then she suddenly said she wouldn't do Traviata. And in the meantime, she had gone to Dallas, Texas, I think, where she sang various performances. And I telephoned and answered letters and cables, and she didn't answer. Difficulty was her husband, who was very difficult in in these matters. So eventually the moment came when I had to say, sorry, contract cancelled. Little did I know that the... Everything disappeared from the front pages, and uh, being fire's colors was just the news of the day. Was she that much more difficult than other artists? The answer is yes, and I think mainly because she was that much more intelligent. Uh, With most artists, you could argue, and if you... uh, I mean... They were just, I wouldn't say they were stupid, I dealt with a great number of very intelligent artists, but eventually you could get them around, so to speak. Carlos, you couldn't get around. She knew exactly what she wanted, and she knew why she wanted it, and that made things very difficult. And uh, consequently, she was, I would say she was the most difficult artist 
I had to deal with in my time. For our program tonight, however, the last words on the matter belong to Kalas. With Bing, did he have to go and say, oh, she's an impossible person? Why? I'm quite sure he's met so many other impossible people. He just completely got even with me for all the things that he could not get even with other people. That is what I call bad destiny. I was unlucky. Because my other colleagues have really hurt him much more. That's why he respects me and he really sincerely, I'm sure, loves me. But he's a weak man. I suppose I pay the consequences of so many other, you know, like a glass that fills up and uh, I was the thing that filled his glass up. December 1958 saw Kalas' debut in Paris at a charity gala concert at the Paris Opera with a veritable celebrity who's who in attendance. Also in the audience that evening was the Greek shipping magnate Aristotle Onassis, who invited Kalas and Menegini to join him and his wife Tina for a cruise on board his yacht, the Christina, in July of that year. The scandals, the disputes, the supposed walkouts and tantrums, and the consequent publicity, these all added to Kalas's fame and reputation as the most famous opera singer in the world. Kalas, however, fully understood the perils and risks of her growing reputation, a reputation that was becoming harder and more difficult to sustain. I would like to be Maria, she said in one interview, but there is also La Kalas. Having conquered the operatic world, Kalas's desire to perform had been steadily decreasing. In the five years between 1951 and 1955, she made between 45 and 55 operatic appearances per year, but in the next four years, the figure decreased from 49 in 1956 to 30 in 1957, 28 in 1958, and only five appearances in 1959. Kalas was getting tired of the arduous schedule and constant work that had been part of her life since adolescence, and she was thrilled to give up the grueling rehearsals, the nights of studying libretti, the strenuous daily vocal exercises, the terrible stage fright before every performance, and the merciless criticisms whenever she missed a single note. She had sung every role that an opera singer could dream of singing, but there was one role in her life that remained unfulfilled, that of being a woman, a wife, a lover, and a mother. Onassis reawakened in Kalas a sensual and romantic side of herself as a woman that she had not known with Menegini, who was 28 years her senior and more a father figure than a husband. Conductor Carlo Maria Giulini and director Franco Zeffirelli. Her life was dedicated to the music, to the theatre, like, like a priest in the religion. And... Uh, this was continued to the moment in which the door of the high society became open for her. And there, in this moment, of course, the temptation for her was very hard because she was a sentimental problem, but also this, the possibility for, in the moment of her life, to live a human life. She was very prim, she was very, you know, very strange sometimes, very moralistic. But the reason was because she was shy and in the end. She never had really confrontation with a man. Never had a clash, I mean, a big bang with a man that ends up in a, in a great sexual or emotional relationship. Never happened to her. 
never happened until Onassis appeared. By the end of that fateful cruise on board the Christina in 1959, Callas was romantically involved with Onassis and her marriage to Meneghini was over. Before I play out tonight's program with Una Voce Poco Fa from Rossini's Il Barbiere di Sevilla, a reminder that you can download tonight's program, as well as the previous two programs in our Callas series, from the website On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. You can also email me at adrian at onandofftherecord.com. I hope you'll join me again next week for the final program in our series on Maria Callas. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful long weekend. Good night.
Oh. 